Good morning. My name is Pastor Dale. I'm one of the team members here at Seacoast, and it's my uh, privilege to welcome you and invite you to do what we do every week, open the Word of God, okay? Whether it's your uh, app on your phone or your tablet or whether you have the uh, kind of the hard school, old school version like I love, would you open their Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we are in a series entitled Dear Church, in which the Apostle Paul is pouring out his heart to a very, very troubled church uh, of the city of Corinth. And uh, the Corinthian church had a lot of issues going on. We've been walking through those issues and trying to learn from them. Because in many ways, Corinth was a culture very much like modern-day America. And we need to learn from these lessons and apply them with wisdom right to our lives. So open the word with me, please. You know, for most of us, um, when you think about gathering on Sunday morning, uh, it becomes a routine. Now, let me just kind of confess. I've been doing it since I was a little kid. My parents took me to church every Sunday, and if we weren't sick or on vacation, we were in church. And so it kind of becomes a routine. And then uh, I became a pastor, and then it became not only a routine, but it became a, you know, when I'd say to my wife, honey, I don't know if I feel like church today. She'd say, you have to feel like church. You're the pastor. You know, I mean, okay, you got to go. I said, all right, I got to go. But it becomes routine. Most of you woke up today and you had a couple big hard decisions, 9 o'clock or 10.45, right? I mean, that's your choice, 9 and 10.45. So how do you make that choice? Well, you, you look out the window and you see the weather and you go, is this a good beach day or a bad beach day? You know, and I mean, I hate to, I'm just confessing, okay? That's, that's how we process, but it becomes a very routine thing. You don't really even think about it. It's like, oh, okay, yeah, it's Sunday. As a follower of Christ, I go to church. What am I going to wear? That's the biggest decision you have to process. Can the kids get ready on time? Can I get them all ready and get them there? Okay, so we'll come at 1045. Amen? Yeah, some of you. I'm reading your minds. But it becomes a routine. But underneath that routine is the discipline of gathering every seven days. We gather because God's word encourages us to, to gather every seven days. And we gather to worship him. We gather to, to sing a few songs about him and get our focus on him. But we gather and it's pretty easy in our culture. Because we gather, we know that the room will be set. We know that there's room for us and the, and the seats are all properly cleaned and aligned. The carpet's been swept. We got a professional worship leader with the band ready to lead us in some worship. And, and then we've got some announcements. And then we're going to have an opportunity to give, which is a part of our discipline. And then after that, we're going to probably sing one more song because you got to sing while you give. If not, it doesn't count. But, you know, I'm just kidding. But, but the reality is it's just a routine. We don't even think about it. And then hopefully we hear something from the Word of God. We hear something from both the worship and the Word so that when we go out the door, we're a little better equipped to deal with life and to live life as a follower of Jesus. We're better off for coming. Amen? At least I hope we are. If not, we're kind of wasting our time. 
But the story we're going to look at today is the story of a church that had problems when it gathered. But before we even teach it to you, I want to help you envision it because it was a very different type of gathering than what you and I experience. They gathered probably on Sunday evenings for worship, became the tradition of most of the early church. They gathered in homes, not buildings like this. So they didn't have the nice lighting and they didn't have any PowerPoint at all, which means I would have been a terrible pastor because I'm so PowerPoint dependent. That's a joke and you missed it. You think, no, Dale, you are PowerPoint dependent. Okay, okay, I'll confess that. So the reality is they didn't have all the tools, all the tricks. They didn't have microphones and a band. They gathered usually in homes. So when this letter is written to the church of Corinth, what he's writing to is the church with a capital C of Corinth. They were a a series of small home-based fellowships of followers of Jesus meeting all around the city of Corinth, and this letter would have been circulated to all of them. But he was addressing issues, and one of their biggest issues, he says, is when you gather, you got problems. But they gather for the same reason as us, but it looked very different, probably home-based. History tells us that they probably celebrated what we call the Lord's Supper or communion every week. And they did that in their tradition. It's not that we have to do it every week. Jesus says, as often as you do it, do it in remembrance of me. So we have some flexibility here. But it looked very different than us because when they gathered, they gathered and they would, uh, part of their evening is they would have dinner together. So they would have a shared meal. Those that had a little more that was a little wealthier, they would bring a little more of the food perhaps and the wine and they would have a dinner with wine and they would would gather, they'd have the meal together in a home and then in the context of that, they would also worship and be taught and pray and be the church. But it looked very different than what we did. So today... I want to look at their problem first and try to correctly understand it so that we can apply their solution to our life as well. Because there's some great wisdom here on how God wants us to approach not just communion, but how he wants us to approach gathering together. So listen to the word of God. Dear church, you've got problems. I've given you an outline, by the way. If you want to use it, it'll help you follow. But here's the setting The setting is as you come together. But in giving this instruction, verse 17, pick it up in chapter 11, verse 17. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you have, because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. Now just stop right there. His summary statement out of the gate is I can't praise you because here's the deal. You are so messed up when you gather that you are worse off when you leave than you were if you had not come. You don't gather for the better. Gathering for the church should be for the better. It should send each and every one of us out the door ready to live life at least a little bit better off than we were if we hadn't come. Make sense? But he actually says when you gather, you leave worse than when you were when you came. Wow. That's quite an indictment. Your gathering together is actually hurting you, not helping you. Man, that's serious. So the problem was defined in the next two verses. 
Verse 18, for, this is why you're worse off. For in the first place, Paul's going to have a series of issues with them, but in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions exist among you, and in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. In other words, you are judging one another. Therefore, when you meet together, it's not really for the right reason. Let me give you that in a minute. But the issue that he highlights is the fact that you gather there are divisions and factions among you. You are not unified. You are fractured. You are Jew and Greek, and you can't get along. You are slave and free, and you can't get along. You are of different racial backgrounds, and you can't get along, different ethnic backgrounds. And you've got all kinds of divisions. In fact, we've been studying those through this book, haven't we? I mean, they had lawsuits going on within, their, within the church in Corinth. They had disagreements. They had, I like Paul. No, I think Apollos is the better teacher. I follow him, not Paul. And no, 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 you should follow Paul. They disagreed on which pastor on the teaching team they liked the best. I mean, they were fractured in so many different ways. And one of those, we'll see in a minute, was they had the haves and the have-nots. They came from different economic stratas. Some were very poor, coming out of poverty, if not even slaves and servants, and others were very wealthy, and they would bring more of the food and the drink and the good wine for dinner. And, you know, so this was their, this was their problem. It was divisions and factions among you. Now, that problem, if the root of the problem were divisions and factions, the fruit of the problem that you could see was it affected the way they worshiped when they gathered. Here it is. Pick it up in verse 20. Therefore, as a result of these divisions, when you meet together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper, that is, in worship. For in your eating, each one of you takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another drinks too much and is drunk. And I like the next verse, verse 22. What? That's right in the Greek text. Look at it. It's like, what? I can't believe this. You gather for the purpose of sharing a meal together, and encompassed in that meal is the breaking of the bread, the drinking of the wine, representing the body and the blood of Christ, remembering Christ. But you even in that meal, they used to call it the love feast. It was the Eucharist or the love feast. It was was when they would, as a church, share a joint meal together in unity as a church and care for each other over dinner. And in the midst of the dinner, they followed the example of Jesus. They would break bread and drink the drink, the the wine in remembrance of Christ. But in this case, he says, some of you show up and this is what happens. Some of you, I'm hungry, so I'm just going to chow down. And 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 I start eating up eating the food before other people even arrive, and another drinks so much he gets drunk before the, 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 the real worship begins. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? In other words, it's not about the meal. It's about Jesus. But you're treating it like it's just about your weekly meal together and having some good wine together, and, and, and you're being gluttons, and you're getting drunk, and, and some people show up late and have nothing. He says in verse 22, and do you 
despise the church of God, the very nature of the body of Christ, the church of God, and you shame those who have nothing because they show up late and they don't have anything and you've already eaten all the food. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you because you gather? No. In this I will not praise you. So you've got you've to picture that what's going on here is far more than just a, the way you take communion. This passage has often been used as the classic passage on how we should approach the Lord's table. Whenever we go, and of course in our culture, we do it very differently. We don't do communion as a part of a meal. We do it as a part of our worship, and there's nothing wrong with that. We have flexibility culturally to do it differently. But, you know, they were doing it very different than when we do communion once a month. We approach the Lord's table. We have, in remembrance of Christ, we have a small piece of, uh, of unleavened bread and culturally appropriately gluten-free, okay? It wasn't an issue in the early church, but it is today. So that's okay. So we want to be gluten-free and unleavened, and we have the little wafer representing the body of Christ, and, and that's okay. It's in remembrance of Jesus. And we have the little plastic cup, and we choose not to use uh, real wine like they did, but we choose to use grape juice, and, you know, so there's not really a danger of us getting drunk on it, even if you come early to church and you sneak off with a whole tray by yourself. I mean, you could down a whole tray and not get drunk. I just want you to see you could down the whole thing of little wafers and not get overly full. But, but the bottom line is that this was very different. And if we don't understand that, you'll misapply the passage. Paul was very upset with them. So he shifts from describing their problem to giving their solution. Verse 23, he says, For, he says, I'm not going to praise you for the way you're gathering because you're worse off when you gather than if you hadn't even come. That's how bad they were handling their gathering as a church. So what's the solution? For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. In other words, I've taught this to you. That the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, he set the example. He took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This represents my body, which will be broken on the cross for you. Do this in remembrance of me. It says he did that right after he gave thanks, which means he did it at the beginning of their meal. And then it says, verse 25, and in the same way, he took the cup after supper. So now you've jumped to the end of the meal. There's been an entire dinner in between. Then he takes the cup and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In other words, every time we partake of the Lord's table, or when they did, it's sacred because it represents something very holy. It represents Jesus. It represents Jesus on the cross, giving his life and his blood for our sins in our place, paying our price, giving us life, and it's the heart of worship. And he says, you guys, when you do it, you're not doing it like that. You're treating your Sunday gathering as if it's just their weekly meal and you're, you're looking forward to the feast and you're, you're even disrespecting each other and the very 
Uh, the very meaning behind it is being lost. So what's the solution? I think the solution is this. He gives us three tips in this passage for how we can improve, not just how we take communion. I want to take the focus a little bit off of that because you got to realize in this passage, the context is not how do you approach the table with the little plastic cup and the little wafer. It's, it's about how do you gather for worship. This is about what do we do on Sunday morning to make it not routine, but make it more effective in our lives as we gather in worship. That was the issue. So what's he tell them? Well, number one, when you gather, remember Jesus. Keep him as your focus. That's the first of three key points. Keep Jesus as the focus in worship. For sure, he's the focus of communion. Uh, that's a no-brainer. But I think he's really saying, as Dom has mentioned several times and other worship leaders here, this service is about Christ. He is the centerpiece of our worship from beginning to end. He's the centerpiece of our faith. Keep your focus on Jesus. They had lost that. And yes, it applies to communion, but really a whole lot more. It's about remember me. Jesus said, as often as you do this, whether it's weekly, monthly, as often as you do this, make it a time of remembrance, reflection, reminding yourself of who Jesus was and what he did and how he was the sinless son of God who gave himself on a cross but rose from the dead. He paid for your sins and mine, and it's he that we follow. Number two, But then he also says to them, verse 27, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of Christ, of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is then to eat the bread and drink the cup or come to worship. What he's saying is examine yourself as you approach worship and seek to come cleansed and humbled by grace. That's my summary of what he's getting at. That we focus on remembering Jesus, focus on Jesus, but then secondly, we should take time to examine ourselves. Now, for many of us, maybe that's not part of your routine. You don't get up in the morning and say, you know, before I ever step into the room to worship, I need to examine myself. For sure, before I approach the Lord's table, I need to sit quietly and examine myself. I need to ask the Spirit of God who lives in me to help me be sensitive to God. Is there, is there, is there sin that I'm not aware of? Or, or better yet, what about the sin I am aware of? I, I need to seek to come to Christ cleansed, not by my good works, but cleansed by his grace, remembering who he is and what he did. So when I think about examining yourself, as I, as I look at the passage, I really see not one, but maybe a threefold aspect to this self-examination that is healthy for the follower of Jesus. Here, here they are. Number one, examine yourself with honesty. Just take an honest look inside and ask the Spirit of God to reveal attitudes of the heart actions, things that are outside of his will, his desires for us. And by the way, when I do that, there's always something. There's always something that the Spirit brings to mind because I still sin and you still sin and we're all cracked pots that have been molded and mended by grace. A few 
months back, I showed you the picture of a, of a, of a Japanese art form where they, where they take broken pots and they mend them with, with glue that is made of, with gold dust in it. Remember that? I should have brought the picture today because it fits here again, because we remember that I'm like that cracked pot, which actually, once it's mended by, by glue made of gold, it actually is more beautiful than it was before it was ever broken. And actually, the thing that gives it its beauty is the glue of grace. The glue, the golden glue of grace in our lives actually beautifies us before the world, because we're all cracked pots that have been put back together by the grace of God. Amen? Yeah. So he says, come with honesty, looking at yourself. Now, by the way, this doesn't earn your forgiveness. Eternally, you're in a relationship with your heavenly father where all of your sin, past, present, and future, has been paid for by Christ on the cross. In fact, let me prove that to you. When, when Christ died on the cross, how many of your sins were future tense? Answer? All of them. All of mine. All of humanity. So Jesus died for the sin of the world, not just the past, but the present, the future. So it is paid for. You are eternally forgiven and secured and loved by the grace of God. You are as loved on your worst day as you are on your best day because God's grace covers you. You are in Christ is the phrase that's often used. But we have a relationship going with God the Father as his children who are forgiven. And that relationship can be, uh, have tension and can be broken in terms of our fellowship, our, 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 our walking in unity with our, with our God. It, whenever we knowingly sin and we don't want to deal with it, it can break the relationship. And it's just like any parent knows with their kids. I love my kids. I love them enough that I drove last night all the way up to Fullerton, uh, in the evening, even though I was going to be busy today because I love my kids and one of my kids has three of my grandkids and I love my grandkids more than my kids. <laughs> and, and we get along so great because my grandkids and I have a mutual enemy. Um, <laughs> and that where their parents drove me crazy when they were my kids. But now, but now anyway, so, so we drove up to watch this great theatrical production of these highly talented grandchildren who were adorable and the best of the show. Amen? Okay, that's for my grandkids up north. See, God loves you more than you love your kids. He loves you more than you love grandkids. He loves you with a perfect love. But even with my imperfect love, when my kids misbehave, I didn't kick them out of the family. I didn't throw them out of the house. I didn't stop loving them. But yet, our relationship was like this. At times we had fights with our kids. At times we have conflict. We have disagreement. And God wants us to, to deal with that. So when I sin against God, how do I deal with that? Well, the first step is to examine myself with honesty and just be honest with God. 1 John 1, 9 says this, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, I personally think that's talking about my relationship with my heavenly father as a Christian, already forgiven, headed for heaven, but yet I need to walk in unity and 
peace and harmony with my God on planet earth. And when I sin, one of the things God tells me to do is, hey, just come and talk to me and be honest. Don't make excuses. Don't blame it on somebody else. You know, just be honest with God about whenever we realize, oh my gosh, I've sinned. And I want to give you a little word picture to help you picture what that's like. Because I don't want you feeling like this passage is saying, well, whenever you've sinned, like the Corinthians had, man, you better go hide from God. You know, maybe you crawl under the chair and you hide and you kind of say, hey, God, sorry. That's not what this is. The way Scripture describes our Heavenly Father is that He welcomes us whenever we are hurting and sinful and broken. And it's more like a child who comes to their parent knowing that they've wronged them or sinned against them or, or lied to them. And, 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 and what you want to know is that God wants you to crawl up on his lap and then with his arm around you, you tell him what you've done. Because he, he welcomes you into his lap even when you're guilty. See, that's what I mean by confession. Just crawl up on the lap of God and be honest with him. And know that it's a safe place to be honest with God. Because Christ has already paid the price for your sins. He is the payment for our sin. So you can come to God without fear. That's the point. So number one, to... Come to God with an examined life. Examine yourself with honesty. The second part, though, is this, and this is at the heart of this passage. Examine your relationships and pursue unity with grace. Examine your relationships and pursue unity with grace. Bring that up. Pursue unity with grace. Now, this is what their problem was. Listen to this next part. He says, four. Verse 29, he says, For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. I don't think he's talking about my body. I think he's talking about the church, the body of Christ. In other words, if when you get together and you go to, to remember the death of Christ through communion, if you don't even like one another and you're full of divisions and factions and arguing and, and, and you're, you're shaming the very idea of the body of Christ and Jesus and what he did for us, and then you partake of the symbols of his body, his body, his blood given for us, when you do that disrespectfully, you're not judging the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you even sleep. We'll come back to this in a minute. But what I think he's emphasizing is the importance of relationships within our church and within every church. Pursue unity with grace. Now, did Jesus ever talk like this? You bet. Keep your finger in 1 Corinthians 11, and go back to Matthew chapter 5 in your Bibles with me, okay? Matthew chapter 5, or listen as I read verse 23. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says this, Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, in other words, you've come to the, the temple to worship. If you're presenting your offering at the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you. There's, you know, you're fighting with each other. 
leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. And this is the theme all through Scripture. Jesus especially emphasized this. He says, look, your relationships really matter. And the reason is Jesus would say later, I want you to love one another the way I've loved you. Why? Because by this, all men will know you are my disciples. By this, the world will know that the Father sent me because you love one another. It's the miraculous love that Christians have for each other in spite of their differences. That is the number one powerful reinforcer of the gospel to our world. So when that's not working, nothing's working. So therefore, pursue unity with grace. Paul teaches in Ephesians 4.30 even, he says to the Ephesian church, he says you need to speak the truth in love and, and forgive one another and and deal with your anger whenever you're angry with each other and make sure you love one another and have a forgiving spirit. And he says, if you don't do this, he says, it grieves the Holy Spirit of God. It breaks God's heart. So it's so important. It's central to Christianity. It's central to our message and our mission. Now, This was the root of their problem. Over the years, I've seen people read this passage on communion, and they read it as if, well, this is how we should approach taking the cup and the wafer. Uh, make sure you examine yourself, or else some bad stuff could happen, and that's the third part of this. But, but I really think the real problem is not exactly how you handle going to the table for communion. It's how you handle gathering as a church in the first place. And relationships matter. So if you want to have an examination of yourself, number one, examine your own life for sin. And when it's there, confess it and crawl up on the lap of God. Number two, examine your relationships and pursue unity with grace for other people. Number three, but then as you do that, be aware of the next part. This is kind of the scary part of the passage. Verse 30, for this reason, because they hadn't been doing this, They'd been abusing one another while pretending to follow Jesus. He says, for this reason, many among you are weak. Some are sick. A number have slept or sleep. Uh, anytime in the Bible, in the New Testament, when it says that a Christian sleeps, it means they've died. Uh, they've died. Their soul goes to heaven, but that the body has died. And uh, so some of them had died. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we wouldn't be judged. But when you are judged, that is, and guilty, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. In other words, so that it might draw us back to Christ. Now, this is a severe problem going on, and I think, therefore, it's hard to explain exactly why God did what he did. But I cannot get around the fact that this passage teaches that some of them were experiencing the discipline of God, the loving discipline of God, to the point of even sickness, illness, and death. We know elsewhere in Scripture there are cases where God disciplined a believer 
uh, like Ananias and Sapphira, where they lost their life. Now, I don't think this is the norm, and I don't think this passage is intended for us to scare each other to death before you ever go to take communion. Because I don't think it's teaching that, well, but what if you approach communion uh, in an unworthy manner? Maybe you have an unconfessed sin, or maybe you're just Maybe you're new to the church and you're not even sure if you understand the gospel. And I've actually heard people teach this that, you know, you have to be very, very sure that you are completely aligned before you ever go to the Lord's table because you could drop dead. I don't think that's, I think that's not giving context to this passage. Could it happen? Yes. This was a severe situation in a church that had severe problems, so much so that Paul starts this passage by saying, when you gather, you leave worse than you were when you came. That's severe. And in a case like that, God will seek to get our attention. And when we talked about this on the worship team, there's kind of different views on exactly why God did what he did or, or what this means. But I, uh, I love a quote that I got actually from Matt, sent me a quote that he found that explains this concept of God's, God the Father as our loving Father, but yet he may discipline us at times. Here's what this quote was that he found in a book. It says, there is a suffering that we experience because God, as a perfect loving Father, will not allow us to continue to harm ourselves. Discipline is a loving correction that a parent gives to their child back, uh, gives to bring their child back into the safety of who they really are. It is administered by a father who loves us more than we know how to love ourselves. It's never punishment, but it's the loving discipline of a father or a mother. And anyone that's been a parent, you know that sometimes you will give painful discipline to your child simply because you love them. And in fact, Hebrews chapter 12, look it up this week. We don't have time to go through it this morning. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5 through 11, actually says that if we are not the object of discipline, we are not the object of love. Any parent who loves a kid has to learn how to discipline, lovingly, appropriately, not abusively, but discipline. Where? Why? Because they love the kid. That's why they call it child rearing, not child befriending. So understand that. And discipline hurts or else it's not effective. That's taught in Scripture. Uh, Now, but discipline is rooted in a love relationship with a parent, who does it out of love when they're doing it right. And God does it right. So understand that. We do need to take sin more seriously than we do in our culture, though. I think we have a tendency in our culture to celebrate grace if we're not careful to the extent that we think we can ignore sin in our lives. This passage would say, don't do that. There could be consequences. Exactly what they are, I don't know. I think they're different in every situation. I know that typically God's approach isn't to strike you dead every time you go to communion with an unconfessed sin. And the reason I know that is I'm alive today. (laughs) And I'd be dead if that was the case. 
If you think I've always been perfect when I go to take the Lord's table or lead you in it, I'm not perfect. Neither are you. So the fact we have an audience today that is not a morgue tells me that God typically doesn't do this. But if it's severe enough and we are ignoring God and disobeying God, he may discipline us to get our attention, wake us up, and draw us back into his lap. Ryan gave me a great quote by David Pryor that says this as about the church. The world is waiting to see a church which takes sin seriously, which enjoys forgiveness fully, and which, in its time of gathering, combines joyful celebration with an awesome sense of God's imminency and authority. See, take God, he calls himself Lord for a reason. He's our loving Lord, but he needs to be our Lord, needs to be our master. We need to follow him, not to earn anything from him, but in response to grace. Scripture says it's the love of God leads us to repentance. It's his grace, his mercy that leads us to want to deal with sin seriously while enjoying forgiveness fully. So as we approach God in an examined way, what I'm saying is this. There's three aspects to examination. Number one, examine yourself honestly. honestly. Look for God, show me my sins so I can be honest and confess them and crawl up on your lap. Number two, I need to check my relationships and make sure that we are loving one another as a church and we're not discriminating against this person or that because they're of a different background, culture, race, ethnicity, or, po- or, or different economic status. And then thirdly, we need to do it respecting the fact that the Lord is free to discipline us if necessary. But to wrap up the passage, in verse 33, he gives us one more tip of wisdom. That is, come humbly, eager to serve one another. I love this. He says in verse 33, so then, what's the final conclusion? So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, that is, to celebrate a supper together and communion, wait for one another. If anyone's hungry, let him eat at home or stop at McDonald's on the way. That's in the Greek text. That's in the Living Bible for today. But that's seriously, that's what he's kind of saying. In other words, if you're gathering for a meal at the church that's going to involve worship and communion, don't come so hungry that you feel like you can't wait on anyone else and you just chow down or have too much wine. That's not a problem at Seacoast, but maybe it will be. But the problem is this. Make sure on the way, if, if, if your hunger is the reason you're coming, don't come to church just to fill your belly. Stop and get a Big Mac and then come. That's kind of what he's saying. Make sure you serve one another. So what's the wisdom for when we gather? Three things. Here they are. Remember these? Remember Jesus. Keep him as your focus. Examine yourself. Come cleansed, humbled by grace, and then come humbly, eager to say, how can I serve you? I'm not coming to get something. I'm coming to give something. How can I serve you as my brothers and sisters in Christ? That's what it means to be the church. I want to close by just mentioning this past week, I was with Daryl Bach, who, if you want a good podcast to help you understand how to be a follower of Jesus in today's culture, I recommend the podcast, The Table. 
can access it through the website of Dallas Theological Seminary. Daryl is a, is a world-renowned New Testament scholar, but he also is deeply concerned about the church engaging our changing culture. So he has a podcast he does with guests called The Table. And uh, I was talking to Daryl just this past Thursday at uh, a gathering of theologians in San Diego. And Daryl said, Dale, I think one of the things the church is missing is this. Yes, we are saved by grace. That's Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. But it's for the purpose, Ephesians 2, 10, of doing good works that we're created for, that show the love of Christ to the world. He said, but what evangelicals like us have forgotten is the very first good work mentioned after that in verse 11 of, 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 um, of uh, Ephesians 4. The very first work is modeling the unity of Jew and Gentile as they come together, people of different racial, ethnic backgrounds who are so different, but because of unity in Christ, love one another. He says that's the message the church needs to regain. But the problem is churches today are letting secondary issues divide them whether it's racial or whether it's ethnic or whether it's culture or whether it's politics. He says, when we let those things divide the church, we lose the power of our message. He said, the church should be the one place in the world where people who are strangely different can still love each other in Christ. I think he said something that we need to remember. I think he said what the problem was in 1 Corinthians 11. Let's be a church that comes together to worship as different as we are, united in Christ. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for the wisdom of it. I pray, Father, that um, as we celebrate you with one final song about what you did on the cross that we would go from this place better off than we were when we came because we listen to you, because we come focused on Christ, because we come examining ourselves and letting you work on us, and because we come eager to humbly learn how to serve one another, wait on one another, be patient and loving with one another, even when we disagree. Because we agree on one thing, and that is Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. Amen.